Cable news, noisy, boring, out of touch. That's why Salem News Channel is different. We keep you in the know. Streaming 24-7 for free. Home to the greatest collection of conservative voices like Dennis Prager, Jay Sekulow, Mike Gallagher, and more. Salem News Channel is unfiltered and unapologetic. Watch anytime, on any screen at snc.tv and local now channel 525 weekday evenings on fm 101.5 and am 1400 the patriot it's six o'clock talk with daryl wood host daryl wood brings you the day's news and trending topics as only he can with a unique blend of conservative opinion constitutionalism and thought-provoking analysis join the conversation six o'clock talk with daryl wood a daily look at the news in a way you won't hear anywhere else tune in to six o'clock talk with daryl wood on fm 101.5 and am 1400 the patriot or stream at patriotdetroit.com you are in, in what part of the country? <laughs> Southwest Colorado. Wonderful. How are you picking us up? Oh, I stream you guys on my uh, iPhone every day. Fantastic. Um, I, I am a resident of Sterling Heights, but uh, I frequently come to Southwest Colorado. I am just thrilled to be hearing from you out there in Colorado. Continue to listen, tune in again, and call at your earliest convenience. Godspeed. Run to Win with Daryl Wood, Monday through Friday at 4 p.m. on Faith Talk Detroit. Welcome to the Jewish Hour. I'm your host, Herschel Finney. We've got a wonderful show for you today. In this half hour of the show, we will be featuring an interview with uh, Lee Meyerfeld, who's the director of the Zuckerman Holocaust Center. They've redone the entire place, and they're having a grand opening of their new exhibit coming up um, the week at, the, next week, as a matter of fact. The second half of this show will feature uh, some insights into the portion of the week, which is the portion of Bo. We're, we're doing the Exodus thing. It's cha- Exodus chapter 10 and following. We've got a wonderful Hasidic story at the end. Music throughout. So let's bring on Rabbi Ellie Meyerfeld right away. How are you, Ellie? Hi, good morning. How are you? Good. Thank God. Thank you for asking. Okay, let's get really, really basic before we get into what's doing news. Why is there a Holocaust memorial in Farmington Hills? Why does there need to be one? That's a great question. So the the answer is actually in the way you phrased the question. The, the founders of our museum were... Uh, survivors, and they wanted there to be a memorial. They wanted that those that were lost shouldn't be forgotten. And uh, that was the case, I would say, throughout the country. There were various places where uh, Holocaust survivors settled and felt that there needed to be some memory. Uh, keep in mind, for them, for, for Jews, it's important to go and um, be able to visit a cemetery, to visit the graves of their forefathers. And for these survivors, there were no such places. Um, their families weren't given the benefit of a funeral in so many cases. And so that was the original impetus. And frankly, for many of the survivors, they felt like, okay, we have a, a, a place, 
Um, if nobody ever comes, okay, nobody ever comes. And what has happened over the last 40 years in the experience of our museum, the Zekom Holocaust Center, but around the world, is that people want to learn. And so these centers like ours have become places of learning for the general community, not just the Jewish community, but for the general community. I mean, we have uh, kids here in the building today from the, the local private schools that come from the public schools. We have 30,000 kids who are going to be in the building over the course of the year um, from schools around Michigan, up in the Thumb, in the UP. And, and it's an opportunity for the public to come and learn. And so really, it, it, they've been transformed from just a memorial to an active center for learning. And that's really, I think, the answer to your question. Okay. So I remember when I first came, we, we moved to Detroit in 1988. And someone said there's this Holocaust Memorial on the Jewish, the JCC, the Jewish Community Center campus in right. West Bloomfield. And it was a little tiny area. I think now it's, it's I think it, it's Frankel, I think, uses the uh, uses the part of their school. But it was a, a, it was a hallway, basically, that just like descended and had lots of pictures and it, it was very, it was very forceful, but it was, it was tiny. So, how t- talk about the the development? How did it go from this little tiny hallway in the JCC to this uh, massive expanse on Orchard Lake Road? So um, that goes back to about 2020, and the center was looking to expand. And one of the board members and his business partner had bought the old Orchard Theater on Orchard Lake Road, just north of 12 Mile. And they were trying to develop it. And the city was sort of giving them trouble about how they were going to use the space. And the Holocaust Center was looking for a new location. And so they approached the director at the time, Robert Charles Rosenzweig, a blessed memory, and said, you know, how about you take this space? And it's directly off 696. As you know, it's really easily accessible. This uh, MDOT says there's 30,000 people who pass by this building every day, and they decided that they would build a building that would be a public thing. It would be, you know, for everyone who passes this building, the architecture teaches them part of the story. And so uh, that goes back, like I said, about 2000. The building opened in 2004, and so now we're 20 years later um, where we've been here in Farmington Hills. And um, just to take the story forward a little bit, I know you're going to ask me, that's when we were thinking strategically about the institution, we knew that after 20 years, the, the exhibits were going to need to be updated. Okay. Before we go into the exhibits, uh, one of the, the real pearls, the real, it's even more than a pearl, it's a, it's a diamond of the Holocaust Center, is the digital archives. Could you go into a little bit about the development of that. That seems to be like a, a world-class uh, media uh, resource. So, so yeah, so there's, there's various levels. So, first of all, we were the recipients um, of some amazing collections over the years. Um, one of them, which we could probably spend a whole uh, uh, time talking about, was a collection of documents that the Hungarian government, which was a collaborator with the Nazis, but was independent for most of the war until the last few months, um, their persecution of the Jews was a subject of research. And uh, one of the researchers uh, who had worked with us um, gifted us 
his collection of these microfilms, which have been digitized and which are now available on our website. Um, but we have the interviews that we did with over 800 survivors who had settled in Michigan, and those are part of our digital archives. So there's also a physical archive here. We have a library with tens of thousands of volumes. We have a collection of over 1,500 of these Kaddish volumes where communities that were completely destroyed collected their memories and published them, and we've been uh, actively collecting them over the years. So we have one of the larger collections in the world of these um, of these Kaddish uh, books that were done by different communities. Um, so there's a, a large collection here physically in addition to the materials you can find online on our website at holocaustcenter.org. Okay, so now, so let's let's uh, talk a little uh, bottom line over here then. So 20 years ago or so, so the, the center moves from its small little cramped quarters in West Bloomfield to this expanse on in Farmington. What was the goal? What was it trying to achieve now that it was this public space? And then how did that, how did the exhibits uh, achieve that goal? So again, 20 years ago, there were still a lot of Holocaust survivors um, who were very active um, and were thinking about how to tell the story here. And I think for a lot of them, they were hoping to really make uh, a set of exhibits and a, a, a collection that told every piece of information about the Holocaust so that someone could come here and, and really, you know, learn really a, a grand scheme of understanding about the Holocaust. Keep in mind, 20 years ago, um, you know, the Internet wasn't as developed as it is now, so um, there also were, were not that many other sites yet that were, you know, developing this kind of information. And so, so the museum at the time really wanted to be able to provide you with all of the information you would need to be able to become, you know, really knowledgeable about the Holocaust. Let me, let me interject one question. When the Holocaust Memorial Center opened in West Bloomfield, how many centers were there like that in America? So that was the first. The truth is, um, even when we moved here to, to Farmington Hills, um, I don't think that there was more than um, one or two. The, in the interim of the 20 years while we were in West Bloomfield, the Holocaust Center opened in Washington, D.C. Um, but uh, now there are about uh, eight freestanding museums around the country. Um, when we moved to Farmington Hills, there were just a handful. Okay. Um, the L.A. Museum has opened since then, uh, Houston, Dallas, um, St. Petersburg, Florida. Um, the one in Chicago opened uh, shortly after us, so that, that one's been around a while. Um, New York? Uh, the, the one in New York, uh, Museum of Jewish Heritage, um, it has now been around, uh, I would say, uh, not quite 20 years. Um, okay. Uh, there's uh, ones that are connected to federations in other cities. Um, there's small centers in other cities. Uh, there's one that just opened in Cincinnati just uh, just before COVID, um, a really nice exhibit that just opened in Cincinnati. Okay, so so 20 years ago when the Holocaust Center opened on in its new facilities, so it was a tr- it was geared to attract uh, school children as well, geared towards non-Jewish participants to learn about the Holocaust, to learn about anti-Semitism. Did it work? So, so yes. When I came to the museum seven, eight years ago, there was a full schedule of public schools that were bringing their kids to the museum. And when I first asked the people who did the bookings here, um, 
So I asked her, like, what outreach do we do? She says, we don't have to do outreach. Basically, the schedule fills itself. So we've gotten more sophisticated since then, and we've tightened up the schedule so we can get more kids in the building over the course of the year. And we do do outreach, and we talk to schools really around the state. Um, we do uh, education for teachers as well. They can get their continuing ed credits through us. We had 60 teachers here in the building yesterday. Um, that's a regular program we have about a thousand teachers who we teach every year and so we have relationships throughout the state and so you know we talk to them and if um, those schools are, are low income and um, they can't afford to take uh, to pay for the busing um, we have uh, generous donors who are willing to subsidize those and so really there's a, a broad range of schools like I say parochial schools and public schools um, charter schools um, even uh, kids who are, are home school educated but who are part of associations come to us um, really from around the state. Uh, our guest today is Ellie Meyerfeld. We're talking about the Zuckelman Holocaust Center, which is going to have a grand opening of its new exhibit. So a couple years back, the state mandated Holocaust studies. How did that impact the, the Holocaust Center, Ellie Meyerfeld? So that was really the brainchild of Lori Zuckelman, of Alan Zuckelman's wife, where she saw the um, information about the amount of ignorance that there was in the public about Holocaust education. And so she spearheaded this effort that the uh, Michigan State Legislature now requires Holocaust education in the schools. And what that did for us was it opened the door. Um, we hired someone who was a former principal um, in the school systems. He had actually been an assistant superintendent. And he understood what the needs were in the schools beyond the requirements. And so what's happened since over the last seven years, since that law was passed, is that it's become a much broader effort within the schools. So it's not just in social studies like the law requires, but half the teachers we teach are in English departments. They're learning for, um, for uh, they're reading a book about the Holocaust. Maybe it's the Diary of Anne Frank or Ellie Wiesel's Night or many other books that um, – teachers will read with their students, and they need the context. And so, you know, we can help train those teachers as well. Um, we have teachers who have uh, wanted to incorporate uh, what we were teaching in their biology class because they wanted to explain to the students the, the difference between real science and false science. And there was this idea of eugenics um, that the Nazis uh, used to explain the idea of their master race and how they were superior to all of the others. And so these teachers wanted to include it to explain to students how to recognize the difference between uh, um, false ideas and how you test for ideas in science to understand that they're provable and that they are um, that they're real science and not just um, people's weird ideas that they're pretending to be science. And so some of these things are taught in science class, some are in art class. Um, and so today, like I say, there's a, over a thousand teachers who are teaching every year. Um, to give them information so they can use in their classrooms. And it's not, um, it's not just in the, the narrow section of, oh, we're talking about World War II and let's talk about the Holocaust. They're using it in all sorts of parts of their curriculum. Okay. So it seems as though the, the situation, the, the system was, was working very well. So now let's jump up to 2023. What changed and why is there a need to update the Holocaust. I mean, history hasn't changed. So why the need? So, what what has changed that we, you know, if it's not broken, don't fix it. Right. 
so I think three answers. One is um, we started looking at this really five, six years ago strategically, and the exhibit starts to get tired. So that's something all museums are aware of. Um, you know, when you go to an exhibit, um, the, the panels start to fade. In our case, also, uh, I sort of had described how the museum was originally designed with lots and lots of words. Uh, on the wall, we did a study watching one of uh, our curators sat quietly and watched people interact with the exhibits and saw that they were spending only 10% of the time. The ones who stopped would spend less than 10% of the time necessary to read the information on the wall. So we, we know from, um, from the data, not just in our museum, but generally from museum studies, how to write exhibit panels so that people will actually read them. Um, so that's, that's part of it, is to make sure that the exhibit meets the needs of the visitor. Um, the second thing is, although you'd say history doesn't change, there is a lot of history we didn't understand 20 years ago when this museum was built. For example, the number of Jews who were murdered in the East uh, in their own backyards, what people today call the Holocaust by bullets, was not well understood 20 years ago. And that, uh, that information is really something that really has been developed over time. People knew about Baba Yar, they knew about a few of the killing sites, but Today, we understand probably one out of every three people that was murdered in the Holocaust was murdered like that in one of those killing fields. And so some of that information wasn't reflected in the scholarship in the original design 20 years ago. Um, but the third issue, which is, I think, a, a big issue, um, is we wanted to tell the information about the Holocaust as a story about people. And um, it shouldn't just be a set of dry facts. It should be relatable. And so we incorporated dozens of stories from the Holocaust survivors who lived here in Michigan so that, so that as you learn, you're hearing it from first-person narratives, whether that's printed or in the videos. We have them throughout the exhibit. And that's more necessary today than it was 20 years ago. Because 20 years ago, when you came to the Holocaust Center, you probably met a Holocaust survivor, whether that person was your guide in the exhibit or they were working as a volunteer you ran into Holocaust survivors. And of course, today, that's less and less likely. And so the Holocaust survivor voices had to be incorporated into the exhibit in a much more significant way. And so the Holocaust survivors are the first people you meet as you enter this, the exhibits. They're the last people who have the last word. And throughout the exhibits, whatever stories we're telling, we're incorporating their narratives, their documented uh, stories. We have over 800, as I said before, interviews that were done. We're incorporating many, many of them throughout the exhibit. Okay. So now I have to ask you a question, which I've, I've heard. This is, this is going to be a very long question, which probably has a very short answer. <laughs> so I have to give it a whole introduction. In 1974, I was taking a World History II class in high school. And we did a section on World War II, and there was a smaller section on the Holocaust. And the teacher, who was of German descent, her parents were German immigrants, showed what was then newly released footage of, it's a very famous scene, of the bulldozers bulldozing bodies into a, into a pit. And I picked myself up and I walked out. I just said, no, yes. I can't, I can't, I can't watch this. And she wrote me up and gave me a detention. And yes. I took the detention slip and I went down to the vice principal who was of Italian descent. And I said to him, you don't understand. Her uncle was probably pushing my aunt into the pit. 
And he just said, go home. Oh, you don't worry about it. So since then, I, I'm traumatized. I don't do Holocaust memorials. I did go to, there was an exhibit of um, way back when, when it was still in West Bloomfield, of a sergeant who went into the Warsaw ghetto with a camera. He snuck a camera and he took out pictures. Mm-hmm. And the, the way it was set up is the pictures were started out sterile and got more and more traumatic until finally there was like the pictures I didn't want to look at anymore. But I felt that I feel that the there's a need, you might say, for that gut wrench when conveying Holocaust material so that if you want to convey to like this should never happen again, people should understand this is what we don't want to have happen ever again. Is that still part of the new exhibit. So um, I would say it's much less central than it used to be. And um, the reason for that is a, a lot of scholarship that you are much more common than you would think. That it's not just someone who is Jewish who had Holocaust survivor grandparents or parents and lost people in the Holocaust who see those things and are traumatized. It's a much broader group of the general public. And so we really have to think about how to make them understand just how bad this was without traumatizing them. Because as, as you experienced, once a person's traumatized, they can't learn. And um, that was you know, how I was raised, and like you described how you were raised, um, that you know, we show them the shock. Um, and we're much more careful about it today. So there are images that are disturbing that are in the exhibit. The most disturbing ones are set up so that in order to see them, you have to deliberately lean over an exhibit to be a, a, a case in order to be able to look at them. Um, but uh, generally, your point of, well, how do people understand how terrible this is? There are a lot of ways of giving over that information that don't involve uh, desecration of the dead. And so we're, we're really careful about where we use those kinds of images. Um, and that, that's a sensitivity that um, Yad Vashem had to struggle with when they did their update to their exhibits. Um, there, there's a story Hadassah Rosenstaff, who was on the board of the original Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C., a blessed memory. She, um, they wanted to include piles of hair that Auschwitz was willing to give them. And she said, that could be my sister's hair. Don't you dare put that in there. Um, so, so there's a sensitivity um, to, to, to those what people call atrocity images. And then, Herschel, there's the other side of it, which is that today those are really accessible images. Atrocity images today are very, very available to the public and unfortunately even to kids. And so the shock value is worn down. So at Yad Vashem, they said that, you know, they found that it does it, for, many, for some of them it traumatizes, and for others they're like, yeah, that looks just like my third, my first person shooter game. Like, it, it doesn't even register for them. And so you really have to be much more sophisticated how you teach in order to be able to have the impact that you want to have. Okay. So now, so you are opening a new exhibit. What's the goal of the new exhibit, and how does the new exhibit achieve that goal, Ellie Meyerfeld? So. So the, the idea of the new exhibit is to, like, truthfully, like we tried to teach before in the old exhibit, and before it was really our effort to sort of explain on top of the exhibit, now it's really baked into the exhibit itself, 
when people come through the exhibit, I want them to understand there were chasadim, there were great acts of kindness that were done in absolutely awful circumstances by Jews and by non-Jews. There were acts of resistance, of creating schools and education in these difficult times. So people have to understand the grand scheme of what happened. They should understand where the Jews came from, that 1933 wasn't the beginning of Jewish life in Europe, um, and that um, the Jews had lived in Europe for, for over a thousand years before that. Uh, but, but that these, these were people, and that they, they had lives and children and families and, and jobs and, and lived full lives before those lives were interrupted by the Nazis. And then on the flip side, they should understand when they leave that the, the perpetrators, the Nazis, were human beings who are capable of horrible, terrible, evil things. And that that doesn't make them unique. And that unfortunately, each human being is made with a capacity for good and evil, and that they have to nurture their good side because I am capable of awful, terrible things. And when they leave this exhibit, they have to understand that it's their job to go out in the world and do the right thing and to fight against the wrong things because otherwise terrible things can happen. And that's what they're going to learn from walking through an exhibit like this. Uh-huh. Have you had like outside um, experts come and look at your, your exhibits and say, yeah, you did it? <laughs> so um, so we, ha- we have worked with experts throughout the design process. So we didn't wait till the end to make sure we hit our, the, the, the job on the nose. We worked with an international design firm who have designed a number of other Holocaust museums and memorial museums, and we worked with a number of scholars who have been involved in um, designing Holocaust museums so that we weren't starting from scratch. We were building on experience of a lot of other people who had figured out what worked um, and what wasn't as successful over time. Uh, We did have a chance just um, a week ago to do a presentation in front of a council on Jewish museums um, with some experts in the room who this is, you know, their bread and butter, and the feedback was fantastic. Again, it shouldn't be a surprise because we really did the work in advance to make sure that we were thoughtful about how we, how we presented the, the museum here. Okay, so you're having a grand opening. Do you want Joe and Jane Q. Public to attend your grand opening? For sure. This is really a reintroduction of the exhibits to the general public. And so we're hopeful and, you know, we're talking about this in, you know, the general media um, to come on January 28th for our grand reopening. Um, The doors open at 930. Uh, There's going to be a a formal dedication ceremony, very brief at 11. And then we're going to have a Holocaust survivor who will give her talk at noon. And then there'll be a conversation uh, between our curator and the designers um, at 1.30 so that people can enjoy uh, uh, understanding sort of behind the scenes. Um, and then the day rounds out at 2.30 with a, a, a lecture by one of our educators um, on a spotlight on the heroines and the villainesses uh, of the Holocaust, understanding the role of women in the Holocaust, both as perpetrators and as victims. So we really want to invite the general public to come and see this. It's open to everybody. There's no charge. Uh, We're going to generally charge admission, but um, for this uh, coming Sunday, the 28th, there's there's no admission, and we really want to welcome the entire Michigan community to come and join us. Okay, and just tell tell the uh, our listener audience where exactly the 
Zuckerman Holocaust Center is located, Rabbi Eli Mellifield? Thank you. So we're at 28123 Orchard Lake Road. We're just north of 12 miles, just north of the 696 exit there on Orchard Lake Road. Um, if you go to holocaustcenter.org, um, you can find directions and other information about the museum. Uh, we're open um, Sunday through Friday every day, every week. So people are welcome to come to the museum on, on any other day after the, the big uh, reopening as well. We welcome you to, to come and take your time looking at the exhibits and uh, hearing from the survivor speakers and really participating in what we think is a, an, an incredible educational opportunity. Okay, wonderful. That's going to wrap it up. We have been speaking with... Ellie Meyerfeld, the director of the Zuckelman Holocaust Center, they're having a grand opening of their new exhibit on January the 28th, and you're invited. Ellie, I want to thank you so much and wish you continued success and keep us apprised of uh, further developments, please. Thank you so much. Thank you for your time, Rabbi. Okay, Zyg isn't. Hey, take care. We're going to take a quick commercial break, and we'll be right back. You're listening to The Jewish Hour. Why go to a hospital to get healthy? At Encompass Healthcare, you get the -the state-of-the-art wound care like in a hospital. The same medicines, the same everything without being in a hospital. Why put yourself at risk of getting a hospital-borne infection? Did you know that last year, one in six people died in America because of infections they got in hospitals? Encompass Healthcare is an outpatient facility. That means you get your wound care treatment and then go home. There are no wait times at Encompass Healthcare like in ERs. Healthcare is personal and works better, faster, and easier. Encompass Healthcare provides a state-of-the-art outpatient facility close to where you live. Call 248-624-9800. That's 624-9800. Auto accident, workman's comp, and most insurances accepted. Encompass Healthcare's goal is to get you healthy with as little disturbance to your daily activities. Call 248-624-9800. Shulton, you are listening to the Jewish Hour. I hope you do get to take advantage. It is a remarkable thing that Detroit has such an institution as the Zuckelman Holocaust Center. It is definitely a, a an eye-opener educational experience, and everybody should experience it at least once. We're going to change the tone just a little bit. This is Benny Friedman, no stranger to the Jewish Hour. New song, brand new, came out this week. It's called Lo Lepachid. You got, you have nothing from which to be afraid. Let's just say it in, in colloquial English, you got nothing to be afraid of. Let's listen. <laughs> Zoek, 
We all know there's an opiate epidemic, but Advanced Rapid Detox has a solution for people addicted to pain pills, heroin, and dependent on Suboxone and Methadone. Advanced Rapid Detox performs detox under sedation in the hospital. Patients sleep through withdrawals and wake up without cravings. Dr. Julia Aronoff and the staff at Advanced Rapid Detox help people restore their lives and the lives of their families. Addiction affects everyone, even in the Jewish community. And Advanced Rapid Detox is there to help. Call 800-603-1813. That's 800-603-1813. Or visit them online at www.advancedrapiddetox.com. Hey, Shelf Fenman here. You're listening to the Jewish Hour, the part of the show that I know all of you have been waiting for. This is where we play a klezmer tune. This is the Odessa Bulger Band. And the song is called Lemon Chicky, which I'm assuming has got something to do with lemons, but I don't know if it's like lemon cello or lemon something else, but I don't speak Ukrainian, so it might just be lemons. I don't know. Life leaves you lemons. Make, sing songs. <laughs> Thank you. 
Odessa Bulgar Band. I hope you enjoyed it. Up next, something totally different, another part of the world. The group is called Sepharad, Florida, and the song is called A Sephardic Tune.
Want assurance of quality and excellence in kosher? Look for the Michigan K on the label. What's it look like? The Lower Peninsula of Michigan with a K. It's a symbol of the Michigan Kosher Supervisors. Go to their website, mycosup.com. That's M-I for Michigan, K-O for kosher, and S-U-P for supervisors, mycosup.com, and find this month's featured products. You'll find Michigan K products wherever fine food is sold, especially at Natural Food Patch on West Nine Mile Road in Ferndale. Herschel Finman, here you are listening to the Jewish Hour. This week is the portion of Bo, and in it is, at the end of the portion, is the exodus of Egypt. I believe that's like chapter 13, if you're following along at home. And I would just bring up our opener. So, Luke, if you could bring up the opener just a little bit, and then let me talk over it if it's not too much, just to... Okay, you can take it down. That's good. That's all we need, yes. Okay, so what's that all about? Um, That's actually a verse from chapter 13 that after the plague of darkness, Pharaoh told Moses, get out. I don't want to see your face again. Don't ever come back here. So Moses said back to Pharaoh, you have to understand it's after plague number nine. And the Egyptians are really, they're down. All the Egyptians, every Egyptian wanted the Jews out, except for Pharaoh, because he's like, he's the main man anyway. And so Moses said, it's okay. After the next plague, you're going to come to me. And it'll be in the middle of the night, and you'll be wearing your pajamas. In which that Pharaoh screamed, get out! Translation is my own. And the next plague was the the killing of the firstborn. And Pharaoh came and said, no, you have to go. You have to go right now. And here's something very interesting that Moses did. This is like like one of the the coolest moments in the Bible. This is like you kind of look and you go, whoa, yeah. Pharaoh says, you want us to leave at night? Like we're sneaking out like a bunch of thieves? No, we're not, because the plague happened exactly at midnight. We're, We're not leaving now. We're going to leave in 12 hours. We're going to leave at noon, high noon, when the sun is directly overhead. And you guys are going to make us a parade, escorting us out. Think about it. Here you have, these are, these are people who, for the last 210 years, have been a minority, a slave minority, and second-class citizens, if even, and you can even call not even citizens, considered subhuman in the eyes of the Egyptians. And here, when presented the time, in fact, the, the Jews even said, Hey, Moses, what are you doing? Says, Let's just like get out. He's, he's letting us go. Let's go now. So Moses was like, you know, cool, calm, collected. No, we're doing this the right way. Okay? God said, all you people, go and ask your neighbors 
for all of their stuff. He said, we don't want stuff. We want to leave. I said, no. Go and ask your neighbors for stuff. You're going to need it later. And uh, listen, there's things that have to get done. Okay, so what do we learn from this? Sometimes there, there are situations that are really critical. And the best way to handle those critical situations is that they're not critical. I'm just saying sometimes. There's a need. It needs to be addressed. But you're not going to dictate to me. These outside influences are not going to dictate to me. Because look at what look at what Moses was saying. He said, if we leave now, the world will look as though the Jews snuck out. It doesn't look good. We want to be perceived as being on the upper hand. We want we want to have what really belongs to us. And it's the same thing also with us also as well. Especially when you're talking about situations where we're looked upon as being, say, for example, an oppressor, and we're really the victim. And we have to, instead of kowtowing and go with our tails between our legs, if we had tails, and saying, yeah, 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 we're so sorry, we're the oppressors. Forget about it. Don't believe the line. We have to do what's right. There's a very interesting story that I heard. Back in Camp David time, when it was Carter and Sadat and Menachem Begin of blessed memory. The blessed memory only goes on. Big, big gun. So they had this whole negotiation and finally acquiesced. Okay, we'll give back the Sinai, which put later on, put Menachem Begin into a depression and he just went into seclusion for the rest of his life because he knew he did the wrong thing. So Carter said to Begun, now that we have the Sinai, let's talk about Jerusalem. And Begun looked at him very clearly and said, Jerusalem's not on the table. That's all he said. And Carter didn't push it. It's like it was like understood. This is we did what we did, and this is all. It's you know, we're lucky we got what we got. But when we when a Jew stands up and says, No, there's something that Judaism demands, and I'm going to do what the Jewish Judaism says, whether it be a a Jewish law or something in Jewish philosophy, Jewish thought, even Jewish lore, I'm going to stand up for my beliefs. Everybody stands and stands around and says, yes, sir. Speaking of yes, sir, we we have to uh, back out graciously for this commercial word, and we have a pretty amazing story for you. Stick around. You're listening to The Jewish Hour. 
Why go to a hospital to get healthy? At Encompass Healthcare, you get the state-of-the-art wound care like in a hospital. The same medicines, the same everything without being in a hospital. Why put yourself at risk of getting a hospital-borne infection? Did you know that last year, one in six people died in America because of infections they got in hospitals? Encompass Healthcare is an outpatient facility. That means you get your wound care treatment and then go home. There are no wait times at Encompass Healthcare like in ERs. Healthcare is personal and works better, faster, and easier. Encompass Healthcare provides a state-of-the-art outpatient facility close to where you live. Call 248-624-9800. That's 624-9800. Auto accident, workman's comp, and most insurance is accepted. Encompass Healthcare's goal is to get you healthy with as little disturbance to your daily activities. Call 248-624-9800. Herschel Finman here. You're listening to the Jewish Hour. Why don't you get in touch with me? That's great. I love hearing from you. Go to my website, rabbifinman.com. There you'll find a way to contact me right on the on the homepage. If you're listening to the show on rabbifinman.com. Wait till afterwards, because I think what happens is, is when you flip off the page, the whole thing stops, and you have to go back to the beginning and just keep on hitting the 30-second forward button until you get back to this point. So, But you can contact me then. It's okay. I, it's <laughs> another four minutes you can listen. It's fine. And you'll all be able to contact me. I'll contact you. Everything's good. I always like getting mail. I answer all my mail within the week. So if you text me, if you text me on, on like Sunday, so Sunday I'm sitting at the computer. So there's a good chance you'll get a reply on Sunday. If you do it Monday or Tuesday, so I might not get to it till by, you know, for sure by Thursday, I'll get to it. If you text me on Friday, I'll probably get to it on Sunday or send me an email. So that's just the way it goes. There's also, you'll find archived editions of the radio show. It's really cool. You can just listen to old shows very, you know, some of them are uh, very appropriate to listen to. And some of them, okay, understood they're dated. You talk about things that didn't, uh, but they were very interesting the way situations were handled, for example. Um, I was just looking back through the archives before and saw they had an, a, uh, an interview with Rabbi Krasinyansky about the fires in Maui. I went, oh, yeah, the fires in Maui. How soon we forget and and what that was like. So it's like, you know, it's history right there for you. There's also the very important donations page. So if you would like to uh, support this show and all the other projects that are involved with the Jewish Hour and all of its sister projects, go to the donations page. Thank God December is paid for. January, we're getting close. And if it gets paid for, we don't talk. We don't make a pledge next week. We still got a couple of weeks left in January, so you know, go to the donations page and click on. There's lots of numbers there. You don't like any of those numbers? Pick your own number. It's all a good thing, and it's considered a charitable donation. It's considered tzedakah. It's considered you know, giving a charity. You can take it off your tithing. And everybody will be happy if you do. Those people who are listening, those people who are giving, those people who are receiving, everybody's happy. And God's happy. The IRS is happy. Everybody's happy. Just a, a donation could be $5, could be $500,000. Everybody's happy. This uh, Sunday, depending on when you're listening on this show, so Sunday... 
that would be the 14th of January this year, marks the 40th anniversary of the passing of the Bubba Sali. He was a leader of the Moroccan community for uh, 50 years or so. Eventually led them. He moved to Israel. He's uh, uh, buried in somewhere in the southern area. I'm going to say Demona, but I know it's not Demona. Um, near Beersheba, that area down there. And there are many, 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 many miracle stories. This one happened when he was, he was a young man. 1923, he went to visit the Holy Land, which meant that he went to whatever the port city is in Morocco, and he got on a boat in the Mediterranean, and he traveled for the six or seven days until he reached Haifa, Haifa or Ashkelon. And then he traveled around Israel in 1923. He was not allowed to travel too. And he wound up in the city of Safat, way up in the north in the Galilee. And he asked the people over there, they have various different uh, study halls, who in this city is most needed of charity funds. He brought funds from uh, from Morocco to support Torah scholars. And they said there's a certain Reb Chaim Cohen. He's an old man. He uh, is very sick. He lost his family during the famine around World War One. his wife and his children. and But he's, a, he's an amazing scholar. So the Baba Sali went to go visit him. He says, where did he live? He lived in a room, without exaggeration, was six feet by six feet. That was his whole existence, 36 square feet. And he was partially paralyzed, and he relied on people to come and bring him food. And he would spend the whole day just reviewing his studies by heart. He had terrible pain. So the rabbi gave him a large sum of money. And then the rabbi said, I want to give you a blessing so this Chaim Cohen said, Rabbi, I want a perfect blessing. So he says, what do you mean a perfect blessing? He says, I want you to bless me, that I should get better, yes, but also that I should get married and have children who will carry on my lineage. So the Babasali said to him, you're an old man, 70 years old, you want to have children? Do you believe you could have children? And he said, if you'll bless me, I will, it, it, it will happen. He said, you really, 100% you believe? He said, yes. So the Baba Sali blessed him that he should get well and he should get married and have children. Baba Sali left 10 years, 1933. Baba Sali goes back to Israel, gets on a boat, travels the six, seven days, comes back to Sfat and remembers, oh, Chaim Cohen. So he asks somebody, where's Chaim Cohen these days? He's like 80 years old now. So he, someone tells him, points and takes him to an, apart, an apartment. It's a lavish apartment. And he's sitting out on the Marpesset. He's sitting on the porch. And he's like full of vim and vigor. And there's like, there's like a, <laughs> a, a nine-year-old and a seven-year-old are playing around him. So he said, my high, what happened? The Bobasali asked him, what happened over here? So he said, Rabbi, 
after you left, a widow came from South America with her 17-year-old daughter. And she did the same thing you did. She asked, what, who is the most deservant of charitable funds in this city? And they, they pointed to me. And she came and she visited me. And she gave me a lot of money. And she was very impressed with me. And she said, she asked me, can I come and live with you? And I said, God forbid that I should live in a, in a, 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 with, a with a woman. Like, no, you can't live here. So she asked, what do I have to do in order to be able to live with you? So the rabbis told her, you have to marry him. She said, I'm prepared to marry him. So she made a proposal. I will marry you so that I can take care of you. This guy had chutzpah. He said, I want to have children. She's, you know, her oldest is 17. Maybe she, I don't know how old she was. He said, I want to have children. I would like to marry your 17-year-old daughter. And this woman was shocked. He said, that's not up to me. That's up to uh, my 17-year-old daughter. So they called the 17-year-old daughter. daughter. You want to marry the 70-year-old man? She said, it would be an honor for me to be married to such a uh, righteous person and have his children. Okay. So the first thing they did is they they moved him out, and they got doctors, and they got him healed. And lo and behold, the blessing of the Tariq came true. That's the story. That's the show. We hope I had a chance to entertain you a bit. We hope I had a chance to educate you a bit. We hope you have a great week. We hope to see you back again next week. Take care.